Well, hello to everyone out there watching online. Thank you for deciding to be a part of our online campus today. Let me start by saying Merry Christmas on this second Sunday of Advent. I'm so glad that you've joined us. I want to encourage you, as always, to take a moment, pause this video, and go grab your Bible. I think it's important for us as we grow together in our understanding of God that we also grow in our ability to navigate the Bible, to find the text, to to see it ourselves, where it's written in, the context it's written in. And so today we're going to be studying in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. And let me read our primary scripture for today. This is verse 23. It says, There he, he being Jesus, made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He would be called a Nazarene. So that is the word of God. For the people of God, thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we get started today. Father in heaven, we, we know and believe that, that you are this awesome, glorious God and that we need your help to even understand you. So Holy Spirit, join us today in this online service. Help us to understand you. Help us to see the truth in your word. Take that truth, plant it into our hearts so that we might live lives that respect you, that reflect your love and your goodness. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. With that, let's get into the sermon for today. So again, we're in Matthew chapter 2, and we are journeying through the places of Christmas. We're looking at some of the nations and the cities that appear in the Christmas narrative, specifically in the Gospel of Matthew. So I encourage you to have that Bible with you. We're going to be visiting these places each week because, as we know, on the way to Christmas, it isn't always smooth. We often have expectations and hopes and dreams that aren't fulfilled, or we have unexpected changes that we weren't prepared for. We sometimes have to reroute on the road to Christmas. But in our rerouting, the reason we wrote this series is we don't want you to miss the glory of the season. When, it, when the world reroutes, we don't want you to miss the significance of the season. We don't want you to get so busy that you miss the journey. The rerouting should be a reminder for us. It should remind us that we need to be more aware. We need to look at what's going on around us. We need to be more present in the moment. So I have to admit that in reading the story of Christmas in the Gospel of Matthew, I often over the years have failed to take the time to think about and to think through the places that are named, why they're there. But each one is significant. Each one links the past with the future. Each place is important. Last week, we actually looked at being exiled in Egypt. And today, we're going to be looking at the town of Nazareth. As I read earlier, the scripture says in Matthew 2, there Jesus made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken to the prophets might be fulfilled. He would be called Nazarene. In the city of Nazareth, today, there is a large church that's built over the site where it is believed that Mary's home existed and resided. This church today is called the Basilica of the Annunciation. The church had various building projects over the years and over the centuries, and, and most recently there was an older structure that was torn down and a new structure built in the 1960s. And that's really the way it, it often is at historic sites. Often the old is torn down to make way for the new, but not all of the old was destroyed. 
in the lower level of the Church of the Annunciation, there's this grotto, a grotto that, that contains the traditional cave home of Mary, Jesus' mother. Around the cave, there are remnants of the early churches that were built around this very spot. And in the center of this site, there's an altar. An altar that is fairly unassuming, like many churches around the world. But this spot that the altar resides is different. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me go back and, and, and let's hear the story again. Now, the, the story that we're going to be looking at is told in the Gospel of Luke. And it, it tells of a young woman, a young woman named Mary, who was engaged to be married to the man named Joseph. And they lived in Nazareth. Now, today, Nazareth is a busy city with over 75,000 people. But in the first century, it was an obscure village with a population of less than 500 people. Probably around the, the same population, honestly, of, of Nazareth, Texas, if you've ever been there or driven through there. You might remember in the Gospel of John when Nathaniel asked Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? At that time, it was not the hotbed of culture. Rather, it was really seen as this backwater village on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. Nobody paid it any attention. Nobody thought about Nazareth. No one really had a reason to even go to Nazareth. The idea was, why bother? There's nothing there. But in this nowhere village of Nazareth, on an ordinary day, something extraordinary happened. In this nowhere town, a young, faithful woman's life was rerouted. Mary, in this moment, had, had been visited from an angel. But not just any angel, the angel Gabriel. This is the same angel that visited the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, helping him to understand the visions that God had given him. And we, we need to remember that. We need to remember who this angel is, and because and, it's important. Now, we'll, we'll talk more about that in another sermon, but... Let me remind you that, that Gabriel is considered one of the archangels of God, whose role it is to protect the nation. And this is what Gabriel says to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be, the, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You can read that for yourself in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. Now that's all glorious and wonderful as we read it now, but can you imagine Mary's shock? How, how she might be impacted by this announcement, how she might be wondering how this is all going to happen, especially the part about bearing a child because she's a virgin. And remember what the angel said to her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. That's the backdrop for our story. So back to the altar. Well, on the front of the altar, carved in Latin, are these words, forgive me if I mispronounce them, verbum cara hic factum est. In English, that literally translates to the word became flesh here. The word became flesh here. 
Let that sink in for a moment. In the midst of this nowhere village, the Word became flesh. The God of the universe who spoke the stars and the planets into existence, the God over all and in all and through all, picked this particular time in this particular place and this particular young woman. The Word became flesh. A claim that in and of itself is outlandish and extraordinary. A claim that has become the scandal of the very name of Christianity. It's called the scandal of particularity by author and missiologist Leslie Newbigin. The scandal of particularity. In the midst of the world that claims that there are many ways of truth and that revelation is relative. That, sorry, let me go back. The scandal of particularity in the midst of a world that claims that there are many ways of truth and that revelation is is really just relative, that the the way to life and abundant living can be had through thousands of different ideals. We have this claim as Christians. The word became flesh here. The one who would say, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father except through me became flesh in nowhere Nazareth. The union of God and the union of man happened right there in this place, in this time, in this young woman. And that's a scandal and a reroute that no one expected. Even Christians wrestled. They wrestle with this great truth. How could it be that the redemption of the world, of all humanity, happened here in nowhere Nazareth? Somewhere that no one would have expected. But it did. It happened here in Nazareth. Now think about the reality of what God did. He didn't choose nearby Sephoris or Tiberias, which were much larger cities there in Galilee. But even more, God didn't choose Rome or Athens, which at the time were renowned for their culture. No. The beginnings of our salvation began in little nowhere Nazareth. The staging ground was there in this small town of 500 people or less. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, but God chose what is foolish. Amen. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one may boast in the presence of God. And I don't think or I don't find it surprising that, that many people today have rejected the claims of Christianity because of this. They want to reinterpret Jesus to fit their terms. They'll say that the significance of Jesus is not that God became human. It's not that Jesus' death on the cross was the substitute for our sin. Not that his resurrection frees us from death. No, instead, the world says that Jesus was just really a wise person, like Plato or Socrates. Or that Jesus was really in tune with the world around him and, and the needs of the people. Or, or, or they'll say that, that Jesus is a great teacher of ideas and we can get some wisdom by, his, by studying his teaching. That Jesus is clear. 
He did not come to teach us. He came to save us. The Word became flesh here. And only an incarnate God can do that. Now, I want to take a moment and hang out with this word incarnation. We don't use it much, but it is vital to our understanding of, of this moment. This particular statement is the belief that God took on human flesh and became a man, Jesus Christ. And I like this definition. Here, here this definition. The doctrine of incarnation maintains that the divine and the human natures of Jesus do not exist beside one another in an unconnected way, but rather they are joined in him in a personal unity that has traditionally been referred to as the hypostatic union. This union of the two natures has not resulted in their diminution or their mixture, but rather the identity of each is believed to have been preserved. Another reason why so many people have rejected this idea of the incarnation is because to accept and, and believe the incarnation means that you have to accept and believe why God chose to come to the earth as a human. You have to believe that fundamentally we as humans are broken, that we're flawed, that we are in need of a savior. Again, I want to turn back to the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he says, for our sake, he made him, him being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means that Jesus did not sin, but that he took on the sin of all humanity. He took our sinful nature upon himself on the cross. And because he did that, we can take on the righteousness that God offers to us. Or to put it another way, in Jesus, God took what was sin, what was evil in us, so that we might take on what is perfect, what is holy in him. This brings us to, to another scandal of the cross. The scan this brings us to the other scandal of Christianity, the scandal of the cross. God has redeemed us. The scandal was that God chose to redeem us by taking on our sin and death on the cross so that we might receive eternal life. Again, the modern world, that it just boxed at this idea. If God is all-powerful, why couldn't he have just waved away our sins and, and the consequences? Why did he have to take our place? Why did he have to die on the cross? But I think we all know that the reality is that there are consequences for our sin. We see it in our world today. We have violence and lies and betrayal and sickness and death and exploitation. Things of this nature can't simply just be waved away with the toss of a hand. But on the other hand, think about this. On the other hand, another option available to God is he could have just completely destroyed humanity altogether and said, enough, enough. But God is love. And so he took the burden upon himself to deal with sin and its consequences, to offer salvation and freedom to you and me. In doing this, he has set us free from sin and from death. If we will accept it as a gift that Jesus accomplished for us and offers to us. And it began, this whole process began here in nowhere 
Nazareth. The word became flesh here in this particular place, in this particular time, to this particular woman, so that on this particular day, today, right now, you might hear again or hear maybe for the first time this amazing story and this amazing truth. Hear me now. God loves you. He does. God loves you. And he wants to save you. So he became incarnate. He became flesh. Lived this world, lived in this life for about around 33 years. And then he was betrayed and crucified on a cross. And then three days later, was resurrected back to life so that he could offer life to you and to me. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all, all those who are watching this video now. I pray that they have not received the gift that you offer to them, that they would do that right now. They would, they would pray this simple prayer, Jesus, I'm broken. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you were resurrected again. Please, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you become my Savior, become my King, and help me live faithfully for you from this day forward? I, I hope, Father, that the many prayed that prayer and received the salvation that you offered. And that they now would go forward from this day seeking to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. And they would look for opportunities to connect with your church, whether it's through our online campus or our local campus. They would connect with, with your bride, the church. Help us to see you and your presence and your purpose in this Advent and Christmas season, even when we experience I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you, and Merry Christmas.